Well, this Christmas, I had only one thing on my list. I mean, other than the annual socks and underwear in my stocking. Um, and Santa totally delivered. This is Paul McCartney's brand new book, The Lyrics. Um, each chapter is a, a deep dive into the lyrics of one of his most beloved songs. Now, in our family, we're huge Beatles fans, and Paul McCartney in particular. In fact, here's my daughter as Sir Paul for Halloween a couple years ago. You know, it's been so cool to hear the backstories behind songs like Yesterday, Eleanor Rigby, and Let It Be. Now, for instance, did you know that the original working title for the song Yesterday was actually Scrambled Eggs? I mean, Scrambled Eggs, oh my baby, how I love your legs. I mean, I, it just probably wouldn't have been quite as big a hit. Um, or that the Mother Mary in the song Let It Be is actually Paul's own deceased Mother Mary, who came to him in a dream telling him to lay off the drugs a bit. Um, or that Hey Jude was written for John Lennon's son Julian, who was going through his parents' divorce at the time. Uh, only John changed it, the name to Jude to be a little less obvious at the last minute. And it's been such a trip uh, to explore the lyrics of, in my opinion, the greatest songwriter of the last century, um, especially as a songwriter myself who is really, really passionate about lyrics. But that passion for song lyrics is no more serious than when it comes to the greatest compilation of song lyrics in all of history, the biblical book of Psalms. Um, I'm so excited because for the next two months, we are going to be journeying as a church through the book of Psalms together here on Sunday mornings. Um, now, there's 150 Psalms, and so it's the longest book of the Bible by far. We're not going to be able to get into all of them. But we're going to do a deep dive into 10 of them that reflect 10 different types of psalms that we find in here. Um, and the goal is that hopefully by the end of the series, each one of us will feel equipped to engage with the psalms on our own at home as sort of a lifelong traveling companion. But before we get into today's psalm, I want to step back and I want to just take a look at the book of psalms as a whole, you know, to understand their context and what makes this uh, very unique collection of song lyrics, um, a book that stands alone even among all the books of Scripture. Now, for starters, uh, the book of Psalms is actually not a book at all. It's, it's a collection of five books, each of which are a collection of uh, a bunch of different songs and poems, uh, nearly half of which are attributed to King David, who is known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. I should say that the notes telling us that a psalm was a psalm of David, I mean, they were added much later by editors and mostly to provide context for the psalm, not necessarily a songwriting credit. Um, probably most of the psalms were likely written over centuries by anonymous priests and professional psalmists who lived near the temple, writing and selling their psalms to passersby as they went up to worship the temple. But in 587 BCE, about almost 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonians came in and they, uh, they conquered Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, and they led the Israelites away into exile. And there, away from their homeland, with no temple to go to, the book of Psalms became like a, a virtual portable temple, a place that they could turn to to be reminded of the promises of God and invited into an experience of the presence of God as they recited its poems and prayers. You know, like 
the temple itself, the book of Psalms is a vivid and artistic almost embodiment of the entire story of God from start to finish. I mean, it begins uh, in the Garden of Eden with a, this, uh, a psalm about a tree that's growing in a well-watered garden and bearing delicious fruit. And then it continues through book one and two to tell the story of the history of Israel's kings, mostly focused on King David and his uh, royal family. And then in book three, it kind of delves into the experience of Israel's exile in Babylon. There's a lot of lamenting that goes on there. Uh, and finally emerges in book four and five, rekindling hope in the coming Messiah and in the reestablishment and restoration of God's earthly kingdom. All capped off with uh, psalms of celebration, creation-wide celebration uh, of heaven and earth, all creatures praising God together. Um, stylistically, the Psalms are actually not unique to the Bible. In fact, in the 500 or so years before this collection began to come together, Psalm writing was actually pretty commonplace among poets in the Middle East and North Africa. In fact, some of the Psalms we have in here um, actually contain bits and pieces of pagan Psalms from other nations. For example, there was a, an old Canaanite Psalm that said, Look, your enemies obey. Look, your enemies, you will smash. Look, you will destroy your foes. Well, this hymn to Baal uh, was almost plagiarized verbatim in Psalm 92, verse 9, where we read, uh, For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do injustice will be scattered. This practice of repurposing lyrics uh, was commonplace with the ancients. Um, it would kind of be like us repurposing Hey Jude as a worship song, you know, like Hey God. Um, we, we see this kind of borrowing, uh, again, in, in something like Psalm 104's reference to the sea monster Leviathan. Uh, now, in Canaanite Psalms, Leviathan was a, a symbol of just the worst imaginable evils. And the psalmist inclusion of Leviathan in Psalm 104 isn't intended to validate a belief in mythical creatures, but more to recognize God's dominion over even the most dreaded evils, real or imagined. That's why I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, which describes Leviathan as God's pet dragon, a tame and toothless fear. Now this uh, leads us to another uh, important point about the Psalms, which is that they're poetry. I mean, yes, they're scripture, but they're also poetry. And as poetry, they use metaphor and symbolism and hyperbole meant to stir our emotions, not help us construct theological arguments. The truth often is in their beauty. They're not meant to be taken literally, but understood literarily as poetry. So if you read in the Psalms about a sun setting or rising, and you know that the sun is stationary, you don't need to worry about those scientific inaccuracies. It's not a science textbook. It's poetry. I mean, that's why in the Psalms, God is a rock, a mountain, a fortress, a feast, the shining sun, and a shady tree, a warrior king, and a watchful shepherd. God rides on the wind and wears sunlight like a garment. Rivers dance, mountains sing, and trees clap their hands in praise. The psalmist is trying to imagine the unimaginable and describe the indescribable in finite words. And so he says things like, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. 
I mean, it's a lovely way to describe God's enduring patience. But it's not meant to be taken literally, as some have tried, you know, to imagine that a thousand years on earth is like a 24-hour period with God. I mean, that's just an adventure in missing the point. If we're going to understand the Psalms as God intends, we need to appreciate them as poetry. Speaking of appreciating them, um, no Old Testament book is appreciated more in the New Testament. Um, It's the most often quoted book, uh, 68 times if you're counting. Um, It's the most by far. Uh, Jesus quotes the Psalms multiple times while hanging on the cross. Like when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's Psalm 22, verse 1. And he likely recited the entire Psalm. And after the resurrection, we're told that Jesus used the Psalms to show his disciples how everything they had just experienced experienced had been foretold. Later, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, fledgling baby churches, and he encouraged them to sing the Psalms as part of their regular gatherings of worship. Um, This was a practice that continued for centuries through the early church. Um, Israel's uh, virtual temple became the church's first worship hymnal. And that's exactly how we want to treat the Psalms in this series. You know, not just to study them to add more information and head knowledge to our faith, but to enter into them experientially and to be led by them in worship. One last comment about the Psalms, uh, which is that while they are part of the Bible, like I've said, they're scripture, they're God's word to us. They're unique in the sense that they are expressed as our words to God. Or as one uh, early church leader uh, said it, most of scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. I think perhaps that's why the Psalms have endured through millennia as the most favorite and beloved books of the Bible. Okay, with all of that background, um, let's get into our psalm for today, which uh, fittingly for our first psalm in this journey is Psalm 1. I want to tell you that Psalm 1 is in the strictest sense not really a psalm at all. I mean, it's not a prayer. It's not a song. Um, In the original Hebrew, there is no rhyming, uh, rhythmic, or even melodic structure whatsoever. Uh, It actually functions more like an intro or prologue to the rest of the book, and it instructs us on how to engage with the rest of the Psalms. So here we go, I'll read the whole thing. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, as I said, you can see that it's not really a prayer at all. It's more of a a, a warning and encouragement to follow in the way of God. And it begins not with, you know, oh God, hear my plea. It begins with the word blessed. 
Now, there are two Hebrew words that get translated as blessed in the Bible. The first is baruch, and baruch is kind of what you would think of, the supernatural favor of God poured out on someone. And it can also be used to God in terms of like blessing God in worship, but baruch only ever flows to and from God. The the other word, which is the word here in Psalm 1, is ashrei. Now, ashrei is decidedly unsupernatural. It is the very natural, naturally occurring um, happiness, fulfillment, and well-being that comes from making good choices. It's almost like how we think about the, the idea of karma. I mean, if you say your prayers, eat your vitamins, and return your grocery card every time, I mean, you'll experience ashrei, a hashtag blessed life. Um, Psalm 1 instructs us in the way of ashrei, but we should be careful not to misunderstand its meaning. I mean, blessing in the Bible rarely looks like fame, fortune, and good health, the way we sometimes think about it. Um, in fact, uh, this word ashray is the very same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he describes uh, a person who is blessed for being poor, hungry, mourning, and being mistreated. Um, The reality is, in this world, nice guys often do finish last, and uh, the wicked often do seem to prosper. And if, by the way, that bugs you, uh, you want to spend some time in Psalm 73. Uh, It'll really help you work through those emotions. Um, But ashray, it's not material success or financial prosperity. It's, It's more of a prosperity of the spirit. It's that sense of personal fulfillment we get from being a person of honor and good character. It's the good deed that is its own reward. The good night's sleep you get when you're not worried that your actions are going to come back to bite you. It's really quite literally the good life. And Psalm 1 verse 1 instructs us on some of the ways that we sometimes sabotage our ability to experience ashray. It does so in a a poetic triad. It, It describes the person who walked in the steps of the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Now, these three lines, they don't depict three kind of stages of worsening behavior. Uh, They're more an example of repetition, the power of repetition in poetry, what we sometimes call the law of three. Like when Shakespeare's Julius Caesar says, friends, Romans, countrymen. Or when you're asked to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or when your real estate agent emphasizes location, location, location. It's just three ways of trying to say the same thing uh, for the sake of impact. And here, like, the wicked are the morally backward who see evil and think it's good, and they see good and think it's evil. Sinners here are those who intentionally and willfully live their lives contrary to the way of God, um, which is always love. The mockers are those who have become so jaded that they can no longer appreciate beauty and goodness. They've got nothing but contempt for everyone and everything. And the point is, if you want to experience ashray, don't go the way of those who live contrary to the way of God. Or as the saying says, you know, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If you make friends with wickedness, sin, and mockery, you will never experience a life of ashray. In fact, Psalm really actually depicts almost a, a progression away from ashray for that person. You know, from standing or walking with the wicked, standing with the sinners, and sitting with the mockers. You know, from walking to standing to sitting, it, it depicts this idea of being at first caught up in and then lingering a little too long in 
and eventually becoming entrenched and stuck in negative behaviors. This is the destiny for all of those who live their lives contrary to the way of God. But the Ashrei person, the psalm goes on to say, is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The word delight here is like attraction in almost romantic sense. I mean, think passion or infatuation, like a kind of enchantment with the law of the Lord. Which, by the way, isn't talking about like the Old Testament commandments. It's just more an enchantment with the way of God, the truth of God, the, the ideals of God. An ashray person is infatuated with, passionate about honesty, humility, hope and justice, compassion, mercy and love. And they fuel that passion, that infatuation, with the practice of meditation. I know meditation apps are kind of all the rage right now, but the psalmist isn't talking about calming and clearing your mind at the end of a busy day. Quite the opposite. Biblical meditation isn't about clearing your mind. It's actually about filling and focusing your mind on God's thoughts. Um, it, it, it's actually the Hebrew word chaga, which is onomatopoeia. Now, if you've forgotten your grade school English, onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what it describes, like splash or hiccup or knock, um, or in this case, mumble or mutter. To chaga is to mutter or mumble the truth of God under your breath kind of throughout your day. And it's not necessarily literally out loud, but it's kind of like that internal dialogue that we all live with uh, that we often just obsess about and turn over ideas in our minds over and over and over again. Uh, the ashray person does that with the beauty and truth and goodness of God. And it's almost like a cow chewing its cud. You know, in order to get the full nutritional value out of its food, a cow actually eats and digests its food several times, regurgitating it back up and chewing on it to squeeze out every morsel of nutrition. That's what biblical meditation is like. It's chewing over God's word and God's truth again and again and again to try to absorb all of its value and be nourished by it. And the person who meditates like this the psalmist says, is like a person, a person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. I mean, first, I want you to notice the um, intentional contrasting similarity between, remember, the non-Ashray person who was like seated and stuck. And now we have the Ashray person who is firmly planted like a tree. In ancient... Um, Israel, in the, the hot and dry climate of the Middle East, a tree had to be planted by a reliable water source if it was going to be able to grow and thrive. And in the same way, if we plant ourselves in God's way, well watered by God's word, our spirits won't wither. We'll remain evergreen and bear fruit in and out of season, even in the most inhospitable climate. The ashray person is not only blessed, but like a tree whose branches give uh, shelter and shade and sustenance to all those around it. The ashray person is a blessing to everyone around them. Uh, by contrast, uh, the wicked are worthless to themselves and others. They're like, it says, like the chaff that's blown by the wind. Now, for all of us non-farmers, um, chaff is the outer husk of a kernel of wheat. 
Um, it's got no nutritional, culinary, or medicinal value whatsoever. So it has to be removed. And ancient Jewish wheat farmers would use a tool called a winnowing fork to separate the kernel from the chaff. And then they'd put everything into a large disc-like bowl and throw it up in the air over and over again. And as the kernels went up and down, the chaff, because it has no weight, would just get blown away by the wind until all that was left is the kernels. This image of being blown away, of being worthless and insignificant and forgotten. This is the destiny the psalmist suggests that the wicked have. It goes on and says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This idea of judgment, this isn't meant to conjure the idea of like final cosmic divine judgment. It's, it's just the human court system. It's sort of a psalmy way of saying, fool around and find out. Um, and there's some play on words happening here where, you know, the person who used to stand with the sinners can no longer stand before a court of justice. It's like if ashray is the natural consequence of a life well lived, then judgment is the natural conse consequence of living opposed to God's way. The psalmist concludes, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Sort of a summary here. And the phrase, the Lord watches over, it's actually like a lover's gaze. It's describing a very intimate uh, connection between two people. It's a word that actually can have a, a sexual connotation in some cases, um, which I don't think we should uh, read too much into here. This is poetry after all. But, but it is good to recognize there is an intimate spiritual connection, a, a requited love, the Lord's watchful and attentive gaze on those who keep their hearts infatuated with God's way by meditating on God's word. And the end result is a life that's blessed. I wonder how many of us would love to have a life blessed like that, you know, to be like a tree planted by streams of living water, you know, not just surviving life, but thriving, not just being blessed, but being a blessing to everyone around us. Yet I suspect that many of us feel more like that withered leaf or that dried up husk of chaff. You know, we feel unsettled and yet somehow stuck. The whole idea of being infatuated with God, of having passion or enchantment with Jesus, I mean, it just doesn't even register with us. It doesn't make sense. I mean, we've seen it. We're not sure if it was authentic or just kind of put on or maybe it just happens to some people. It's never really happened to us. And the reality is, it doesn't just happen to anyone. It's something that we invest in. And it can happen for you. This can be your moment. It happens as we sink our roots down deep into the streams of living water that gush from the heart of God and make us alive in Christ, who is the beating heart of these poems and prayers. The Psalms invite us to cultivate hearts of praise and spiritual renewal, you know, of trust and wisdom, joy and gratitude, of honest lament and heartfelt confession, and ultimately to salvation in Jesus. The Psalms are like spiritual medicine for us, but they only really can have their effect if we ingest them regularly and repeatedly, you know, reciting these prayers until they become our prayers entering into them like a, like a daily visit to our very own virtual temple, to be 
um, inspired by their beauty, drink deeply of their wisdom, to let their lyrics become the language of our soul and to be drawn into a love affair with the divine poet, Jesus, who poetically and prophetically is the tree of life at the center of the garden who gives shelter and shade and sustenance to all. You know, I said at the beginning that we're only going to do a deep dive into 10 of these psalms, but I actually want to invite you to explore all of them. In fact, starting tomorrow, I'm inviting our entire community to read through the entire book of Psalms together. We've printed a a reading plan on this bookmark that we're making available to you today. And if you work through it and join us every Sunday from now until Easter, you will work your way through all 150 Psalms. All it really requires from you is, is two or three minutes, three times a day, one Psalm in each sitting. So you'll Read a psalm when you wake up in the morning, another one at lunch, um, and then another one after dinner or before you go to bed. It's not a huge commitment, but it could have a profound impact on us. And, you know, if you're not really into reading that much, uh, I'm going to let all of our location pastors know about um, a way you can access for free an audio version of the psalm so you can journey with us uh, in that way. And if you don't feel like you can do three times a day, do one or do whatever you can manage. If you miss a couple of days, just you know, pick up where you left off and keep going. This isn't about getting a gold star for completing something on time. Um, it's about journeying um, slowly and, and being steeped in these psalms and being shaped by them by planting ourselves in God's presence. And I truly do believe that if, as we do this, we will begin to experience a life of ashray, a life that's blessed. So to get us started, um, rather than me closing in prayer, I'm going to invite Carrie Jones to read through the very first psalm in the reading plan. It's Psalm 3. Um, We're going to do Psalm 2 later in the series, but um, it's Psalm 3, and we're going to read it together. I want to invite you to read it out loud with Carrie, um, and let's make this our prayer as we enter into this journey. And as an added bonus, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll already be one psalm ahead. Um, Why don't we all stand together right now, and let's say this prayer together with Carrie. 